from Coimbra to Colombia, from Morocco to Miami. We tell the stories of the people who make the world of international law and business turn. We give glimpses into their lives and provide insights from their experience. These accounts come from every sector and every industry around the globe. Simply put, without further ado, I am Chris Campbell, and you're listening to Tales of the Tribunal, where practice meets personality. Hello, and welcome back to Tales of the Tribunal with Chris Campbell. I'm your host, Chris Campbell, here to tell you another tale, another story from around the wide, wide world of international law, business, and dispute resolution. Listeners, believe it or not, there was a time when there was only one arbitration podcast. Just one in-house counsel sitting in Southern Europe talking into the microphone about international commercial arbitration and interviewing figures from around the field. More shocking, it wasn't even me, it was somebody else. And this in-house counsel was doing all of this while working full-time, being an innovator in the field and a dynamic personality himself. I'm speaking, of course, of Michael, a.k.a. Mike McElrath. Mike has been a major source of inspiration for the show. And really, what better way is there to end season four of the show? But before we get into that, in this week's episode, I should take a chance to talk with you about one cool event coming up in just a couple of weeks. It's New York Arbitration Week, and in particular, a unique event that yours truly will be hosting. It's a quasi-game show titled Jeopardy! Dispelling Myths and Arbitrating in New York. And it's going to be on November 17th, 2022, and hosted in a hybrid fashion. Now, I may not be Alex Trebek, but this is bound to be a ton of fun. We've got a great lineup of contestants, and all you have to do to join is register. Keep an eye out in the show notes for where to register, and we look forward to seeing you there. And we even heard friend of the show, Catherine Rogers, might be there. Hmm, that'll be fun. Now, back to introducing this week's episode. Mike and I sat down earlier this year, and at points in the interview, you'll hear him actually interviewing me in the way that only Mike, as a former podcaster himself, can do. Mike has had a storied career working as a global disputes resolution lawyer, both in private practice and then for years at both General Electric and then Baker Hughes, where he left us just last year to open up his own shop in disputes, where he does what he does best, helping companies and teams streamline and optimize their dispute resolution processes. So this one was a ton of fun and probably one of my favorite episodes to have produced so far. So sit back, grab and strum your guitar and enjoy my conversation with Mike McElrath. And I'll be back on the other side to wrap up. Hello and welcome back to Tales of the Tribunal with Chris Campbell. I'm your host, Chris Campbell, here to tell you another tale, another story from around the wide, wide world of international law and dispute resolution. Listeners, I have a very special treat for you today. This is an episode that we have not been able to do in person for the last two years. A little thing called the pandemic was keeping us from being face-to-face, live, and in 3D. So with me today, I have none other than a very special guest named Mike McElrath. Mike, welcome to the show. Thank you, Chris. Good to be here. Now, the reason, listeners, you might have heard a little bit of a pause there is because the the intro, the background I would have given for Mr. McElrath would have been different from the start of the pandemic versus today. So, uh, so Mike, um, before we jump into it and get into the, the list of questions we got today, who are you? Where are you from? What do the people need to know? He didn't tell me you were going to start with hard questions. <laughs> <laughs> So, um, Mike McElrath, um, old friend of Chris Campbell, I would say. I, I like. I would like to consider myself an old friend of Chris Campbell, uh, if, if Chris permits. Um, former um, head of litigation at uh, Baker Hughes and at G Oil and Gas. Before that, now I, I had my own company called M Disputes, where I do similar things to what I used to do when we used to work together, right? But for other companies, and I'm the former host of. Um, the International Dispute Negotiation podcast 
for CPR way back in the day before people knew what podcasts were. <laughs> well, that's right. And I mean, shoot, before, uh, you know, an arbitration station episode from last season of Tales of the Tribunal. So what we talked about is that your early work, Mike, your early days trailblazing <laughs> as a right. podcaster, uh, set up the arbitration station and, and now myself. So, I mean, how did you get in the world of podcasting? What made you want to pick up the mic in the first place? Well, you know, it's actually, it's funny. It's like you and I have often informal discussions about the informal things that happen around arbitration. And, um, you know, when you're, when you're working as an in-house lawyer and you have the privilege to travel around and to meet interesting people, you, you know, you find that a lot of what you learn, well, actually, most of what you learn that's really valuable is not from what you read in the books, but it's what you pick up from other people. You know, people will share with you those insights, you know, and I and, and, and I was listening to a few podcasts that were just coming out. This is, I think, in 2006, 2007. And I thought, you know, wouldn't it be cool if other people, you know, it's a pity that this is all wasted on me uh, in these conversations. Maybe I could share this with others. And, and, and it was fun. I, I would. I, so I bought a recording machine, the <laughs> Roland, I think it was R9. Okay. Um, and uh I, I took it to a meeting that Emmanuel Gaillard actually had organized. At, and I was thinking about doing a podcast, and um, and I bounced it off of Emmanuel. It was at the ICC's old headquarters in Cour-Albert in Paris. And Emmanuel had organized a, um, a get-together with the staff of the ICC, and he wanted to present – he wanted to talk about this thing that before the emergency arbitration, which is called the pre-arbitral referee process that he had, been, that had helped introduce – and I was pushing for early disp disposition of critical issues in arbitration. And so he invited me to speak about that. And we did. We both spoke to, to the, the ICC staff about these concepts. And afterwards, I had this recorded. I said, Emmanuel, would you mind um, if we sit down and record? He said, no, not well, not at all. And we just talked informally like this for a while. And I said, "This, you know, I said, what do you think if I if I turn this into a podcast?" And he said, "By all means." I think, he, and he actually encouraged me. He said he thought it would be a great idea. And so I did. That was the first one that I did. And then I just I went on. And I did. I think at the end about 102. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Didn't have seasons back then. I just had, <laughs> I, I did them when I could do them. You're very, you're very disciplined. You have a rhythm. You, you're able to, you know, get things out with a certain structure that I didn't, I didn't even attempt. No, but I mean, a hundred episodes. Um, that, that's, that's a lot. Hundred and two. Hundred and two. I'm sorry. Look, I didn't take you two episodes. I didn't mean to take you two episodes. No, that, that, that's great. Um, and I think, I mean, if you look on like. Apple Podcasts, you can still find those. I mean, they're they're there. Yeah, and I think IMI, the International Mediation Institute, has a few of them that they've listed. And other people, I, I you know, it's funny. It's it's really you'll see this too. I meet people today who come up to me and say, you know, I listened to your podcast when I was at university when I was studying, um, and it's really cool. Like you, you know, the, the, the thing about doing a podcast too is you never know who's listening. I'm sure it's yeah. true with you in the arbitration station. You have no idea how many really. You, maybe today you can track more of the downloads. So, you know, look, it was fun to do, and I would have done it just for myself because I thought it was an interesting thing at the time. But apparently, you know, a few people did listen to it, and then you know, yeah. And it was, it's fun. Look, I, I will tell you, Mike, uh, I was at a, an arbitration conference uh, just a few weeks ago, and it was probably the first time we're just being out in the wild. Um, someone is like, hey, you're the Tales of the Tribunal guy. <laughs> <laughs> I recognize you from your voice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, and so that that never quite happened before, but um, but but you know, it's 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 nice to know people are out there listening. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Okay, so wait, let's let's back up a second. Um, okay. So we jumped right into the podcast. We talked about, or you mentioned the things that you did with the ICC and with um, yeah. Baker Hughes GEOG. Um, before that. Where did you go? Where are you from? Where do you call home? And where is uh, where's your origin story? So, so I grew up in a, in a town in central California um, called Stockton, a city, Stockton, California. I was born in um, uh, in well, my parents said the correct pronunciation is Missouri, not Missouri. <laughs> They're from that part of the of the um, of the of the country. Um, but I, I moved uh, at an early age. I was three or four years old when we moved to Stockton. And I, I grew up in Stockton, California. I think it's a agricultural sort of working class town in, uh, in, the, in the north of the state. Okay. So, yeah. Very well. And then so how did you get there to where you now live, Florence, Italy? I mean... Yeah. That, wait, that's a long story. That's a, let's, uh, let's, say, let, let's take the first step. So you went to law school so, from there. 
So, so no, I didn't. Um, I, 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 I came at, uh, <laughs> it is a long story. I won't go take you through all of it. So I was an English major. Um, and after university, I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I knew that just instinctively, I didn't want, I didn't want a regular job. Uh, you know, I, I didn't really have any desire to go work in an office somewhere. And I cert certainly was not going to become a lawyer. Um, people would ask me, you're going to become a lawyer because at the time my mother, um, was a judge. And before that she was a lawyer. Um, and she was very, she was my mom in, in Stockton being a you know, medium, small, medium sized city. Um, a judge can be very sort of prominent and she did things in town that were very, I think, very beneficial to, to the, to the town and to the, to the county. Uh, she started the, the drug court and did things that, you know, really kind of help people. And I, you know, I, I think. There was an expectation or, you know, this is you know, kids growing up in certain families. People would say, well, you're going to do what your mom was doing. So I would say, of course not. And the last thing I'm going to do is become a lawyer. So I didn't go to law school after university. I, uh, I, I had a summer job, had some money. I came to Italy. I, I worked in, in Italy for a bit, wound up in Palermo teaching English. Um, I backpacked through uh, Africa after that first year. I went from with a friend, we hitchhiked from Tunisia to um, I went all the way to Ghana. And then I caught a um, I actually caught a cargo ship um, that worked my way back to Europe, uh, stayed and you know, came back. And got, <laughs> they, let, they let me off in Malta and then made my way back up to to, uh, to Italy and, then went, and eventually to Florence, where I live today, where I again, I, I worked as a writer, as an editor. Um, and, and I continued to teach English until I decided after four or five years to go back to school and to study law. And the reason I studied law was I think I, I gave after a few years of being on my own, I said, you know, this is actually a really interesting thing to do. You know, it's interesting what my mom did. I like the stuff that she did. Um, I knew I had friends who were who were lawyers or active in the legal profession. I said, you know, that was kind of, a, you know not doing something just because you have a parent who does it. That's not a really good reason to do or not to do something. If I'm interested, I should maybe follow this. And so I went back to the States and went to law school. I, I was living in Italy and I was, you know, I, I could have gone to school here, but they wouldn't have recognized any of my undergraduate courses. No, I wouldn't sure. have gotten credit for that. So it was actually, it would have taken me another full studies, five, six years. And I was working. I didn't have, you know, I needed to work because I didn't have money otherwise. So really financially for me, it was the, the, in terms of time and money, it was easiest to go back to the States and go to law school. Okay. So you went to law school. So that's how I went to, that's how I became a lawyer. And then, and I went to law school, I went to work in New York city, um, in New York city. At this point I spoke Italian. Um, I, I liked litigation. Um, <laughs> I, um, I, I, but I, at that point I had a bug for doing international, for doing things that were kind of went beyond one country. And I was hoping to get back to, to Italy, as I'd been here for quite a while, um, I got contacted by recruiters, and um, most of the jobs—no, all of the jobs—were all transactional related. They were, you know, contract negotiations, mergers and acquisitions, corporate finance, and I even remember when I was interviewing um, for jobs with law firms that. I said that I I didn't know anything. I didn't even know our international arbitration existed. <laughs> I, did, I, I, no, I, no, I had no idea. I said, you know, there has to be something out there because people are engaging in international commerce. Maybe there's some form of international litigation. And I remember a partner, one of the firms I interviewed with, right? I said this on, a, on an interview. And he said, you know, if you want to do international work, you got to go into corporate finance because, you know, litigation ends at the airport. <laughs> ends at the airport, huh? Ends at the airport. And I think he meant like litigation in terms of even the United States doesn't go beyond like even your own state, like mm -hmm. your, your city. You're a litigator. You're rooted in that place and in that city. Mm. Um, but I, I just I so I eventually took a job at a law firm, working as a litigator. So, yeah, as a litigator. And well, look, and we'll, we'll talk about the next step here in a little bit. But I think you brought up a really interesting point just now. Um, this this idea that litigating or really even the practice of law ends at the airport. Yeah. Um, a lot of times there is the sort of, that idea is true for a lot of people, a lot of practitioners, that they don't really have an international legal practice. They dabble with some international stuff. You know, they might be involved in an international case or two, but they don't really truly have like an international legal career or skill set. And I wonder, 
what some of the distinctions might be when you think of someone that truly has an international legal practice? Well, you know, I mean, I think it, I hate to be the lawyer who says it depends. Yeah. <laughs> um, when I was working in New York, I was by the part of the clients hate when you say it depends. Um, and I think that's true. We do. Clients. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I, I probably said that a lot when I was, when I was in your job. Um, so I, you know, it, it, there's the intern, there's the work that I think in international cases, but then there's also international clients. When I was working in New York, um, I was fortunate that, that when I start after a year after I started, the former governor of New York, uh, Governor Mario Cuomo, um, it did not win an election for a fourth term as governor. And he came, he was a partner down the hallway and he brought in a lot of clients from Italy. So I actually had a lot of international, and I, I got and I got to meet the governor. Actually, he was a, he was an I would say even an important mentor. I wouldn't say he was sort of. He was definitely an important mentor in my life for a good four or five years um, before I um, moved to the to the job that I took here in Italy. And um, so we, we I had a lot of opportunities to work with international clients, and I think that's a big part of being, you know, having an international practice. I don't know what an international lawyer is, right? And I, that's lots of definitions of what an international lawyer um, But I think you can have an international practice. And part of it is just having clients that come from different places. M most of those clients were transactional. They had some, some were litigations, but I think that's a big part of it. And I think there are people who never leave home but they have international clients and, and you need to develop, you know, sensitivities and understand what their expectations are. And then, of course, there's our area of international dispute resolution where you actually, you know, the case itself is 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 international. Yeah, sure. I have no idea what your question was, but I, <laughs> in a roundabout way, I may have answered roughly what you were asking. No, no, I, I think we got there. I think we got there. Um, and I think that, that that segues nicely. You, you referenced the, the job, well, the job that I have and the job that you took years ago um, in-house counsel. Yeah. What, what, what was that leap from your private practice life? What was the connection there? How did you make that uh, transition? Well, how did you how did you make it? <laughs> you tell you tell you tell me because actually this here let's be awkward since you know I was the one who enticed you <laughs> into the world of in house. How did how did it meet your expectations? Well, I mean, it's it's met my expectations um, because I in particular was looking to sort of marry and combine uh, the interest that I had in business with the legal skills that I've been developing um, for the. For the Prior years, yeah, but you so. but you were hungry for the international work. That's true. That is very you, true. You you you, you were taking anything that could come along that was international. You don't remember that, but you were applying no. for that. <laughs> no, no, no. And, and, and listeners, you know, for for reference, the reason Mike says it that way is because I mean, shoot, at the time, I literally was like the one guy like holding the flag in South Carolina, saying, "Hey, come to random international of all events. What are you talking about? Uh, what do you want to talk about?" You know, that was kind of the you, idea. You, you, yeah. you were so interested in doing international work. He said, "If I can't get a job somewhere else, I'll, I'll I'll make South Carolina be international." Yeah, that that was the idea, and you know, maybe that's something that we we even get into further later in the conversation. But that is kind of the attitude that one has to have yeah. if if it does what you want to do doesn't exist or there's not a clear sort of route right. to it. Build it. <laughs> make, make those opportunities. Make those opportunities happen. Yeah. yeah. Um, so it, how about so you're not answering the question? How'd you? Uh, <laughs> how does it? How has it met your expo in terms of what you expected and how it's turned out? I, I think as I think I'm entitled to an answer to that yeah. question. Chris. I, <laughs> no, no, you, no, you absolutely are. I I have had a, an amazing ride um, and grown so much as a lawyer, especially in the past several years, that I'm certain I would have continued to grow in South Carolina, but. To your point, Mike, uh, the ability and what I was really looking for out of my career was this international practice where one day I'm dealing with an issue maybe in the Middle East, then dealing with something in China and getting to stretch those muscles that I was had routes or roots in um, from law school and business school, but just hadn't really had a chance to, to scratch those itches. And But you'd also yeah. studied in China. Yeah, this is true. Yeah. This, is, this is true. And in fact, um, yeah, maybe I... I Listeners of the show may not. May, I guess if you go on my LinkedIn, you can see some of these things. But yeah, um, from the sleepy hollow of Irmo, South Carolina, to Beijing, to London, yeah. to Paris. I mean, okay, now we're just doing the intro. <laughs> 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 um, but, but, <laughs> um, but 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 yeah, man, that's, that was exactly what it was. And um, and working for a, a global company like first uh, BHGE and then now Baker Hughes um, 
has. Yeah, but I don't. I don't think. And you can correct me here. I don't think that you were as motivated to go work for a company. You wanted the international job. You wanted the international dispute resolution in particular. You had the Vs moved behind. You had the Vs we, yeah. we haven't mentioned. So if you if you you can actually connect those dots. I mean, maybe it wasn't as apparent to you, but it, it shouted out of what you were doing at the time. I am looking for that job in international dispute resolution. That's true. Yeah, yeah. that's true. No, no. Um, it, and to be clear, I mean, at the time, there, uh, as you know, Mike, um, and others that knew me from the time would know, there were definitely other international commercial jobs or company jobs that were available. Right. But um, what was unique about this position that I ended up taking was exactly what you've said, is uh, the opportunity to actually have that international job and be operating um, and practicing law above borders and yeah. between in the spaces between borders. You know, because when I, I, when I would interview people for, you know, I'm sure you're doing this now, you're Baker Hughes, you, you get asked to do the interviews for your colleagues, right? Whether they're applying for labor and employment or they're applying for um, you know, environmental or commercial transactional positions. Um, and the, 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 the answer that always turned me off on people, and there's not a lot that turns me off on people, but one thing that turned me off was when people would say, I want to come work in-house. I oh. want an in-house job. Yeah. You know, it's like, no, <laughs> oh, I don't, I don't, I don't, you know, I would, I don't, why, you know, because it's easy. I mean, you know, it, it, I mean, it's, it, it's not. <laughs> well, yeah. And well, that, that's always what's a little bit uh, chuckle inducing for me is I've had colleagues reach out over the past several years um, that are like, oh, I'm thinking of getting out of private practice and going in house, you know, just want a little bit of a different pace or yeah. I want to do this. And which all what they're implying is that, oh, they don't want to work hard or they don't want to, you know, uh, they want something that's easier than the private practice. And it's, it's almost a backhanded sort of compliment, but you know, it's, 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 it's but I don't think it's a, it's, it's a wrong to me. It's not, a, well, at least look, maybe other people find that a legitimate reason to, to hire someone. For me, I wanted to hire the best people. I, to, my view is that I wanted somebody in international dispute resolution who wanted, who had the hunger, that passion to do like you did. Yeah. Like, like, like when I pitched the job to Teresa Garcia Ray as your current boss, yeah. I think I may have told her it's going to be a harder job than your current one. <laughs> no, because you, you want people who like those challenges. Like, as you said earlier, you want to grow, right? They have the opportunity to grow, to change to you know, so anyway, yeah, that's for listeners out there. I don't think that uh, if you're applying for jobs and to say, I want to come work in house, if that's, no, you want you want the job that has. I mean, maybe you'll say that because you think that's what the people want to hear. I think sometimes they say that because they think that oh, the in-house job, you know. But I think you want to pitch to the to the domain. You know, I'm interested in this. You know, whether it's labor and employment, I want to be an international labor and employment lawyer, and here's why. Or I'm an international commercial dispute resolution, and here's why. And I think this is the best place for me to do that. Yeah, and and I think that part of the principle of what you're talking about right now, Mike, is if you have that sort of vision and drive to get after it and be the best that you can be in that role and in the field, making that sort of impact, that ultimately is a benefit to the company. Mm -hmm. And the payoff to the company is ultimately what matters. And if you want to be a successful in-house counsel, it's going to last a little while. You yeah. have to focus on how that affects the business. You know, it's not in the law firm where your job is to have disputes and to be working on disputes. Those yeah. aren't good things as it yeah. turns out. Yeah. So yeah, it's right. So you, I think, I think, I think, you gave a good answer to the question <laughs> for, uh, for, 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 for me. I think you, yeah, I, I think, I think you've answered as, as I, as I would have. So I think most of us who found that in-house is really fulfilling is that, you know, as you said earlier, it gives you a chance to grow in yeah. ways, you know, and you, you, you know, and unlike, I think the purely outside world, you can, you have some control over your destiny. Like you get to choose like the cool thing that, you know, you do. And I got to do is we say, I don't want to send this to outside counsel. <laughs> this is too interesting. I want to. I want to do this myself. Yeah. Well, yeah, and that's true. And unless there is a, a sanction or some reason why you can't do it yourself, yeah, yeah, uh, you, yeah you handle as many of those as you can. Yeah. Um, and then you kind of begrudgingly, when you have to, send it outside. Yeah. Like there, okay. There, fine. there are only there are only so many hours in the day, and that's that, again that goes back to the why I think that the answer is not a great answer. I want to come work in the house. It's like, you know. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, and well, frankly, that that we sort of have easily segued through my my next question for you. So, um, the, the, what I'll do is I'll jump to the next one, and and I guess it, it's timely because you know as we record this in uh, you know spring of 2022, we do find ourselves knocking on wood 
the, hopefully the back end or emerging from the pandemic. Um, but the pandemic has undoubtedly had a number of changes on the way that we work and the way that laws practiced. Um, what are some of the things that you've seen that have emerged in the pandemic age and that you think will stay around for a while? Um, <laughs> I think that we're, we're facing a situation where change hasn't stopped. Um, I think coming out of the pandemic, people think, and I think rightly so, that some things will go back to the way they were. I was just in London for a conference. I think we will still have people getting together. Um, but the conference that I was at also had a hybrid component. So people who are not there but yet wanted to benefit were able to participate um, virtually. Um, for dispute resolution, I think that we're going to see this blend of practices that will continue to enable doing things differently. Um, one of the things, and I, I just wrote um, a, a chapter to, to a book that will be coming out later in the year, um, but I, 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 the, the subcaption to the, to the, or the subtitle is um, the rise of the uh, midstream conference or the rise, you know, or the, which, which is all you could also consider it, you know, the CMC2, Case Management Conference 2, in international arbitration. What is the midstream or what is the case management conference too? Well, that's that's a um, a case management conference you have after there's been you know, the, the principal statements of claim and statements of defense, but a lot of the arbitration yet remains to be done. But it gives the 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 arbitrators and the parties an opportunity to look at and decide whether or not there are things that really require and you know the extensive proceeding. I mean, if you can decide everything right now just on a point of law, like for example. Whether, let's say, a you know, liquidated damages provision of the contract provides or a limitation of liability or a termination clause is a or what, you know, these key points that, you know, there may, you know, there may be circumstances factually where it makes sense to send those to a final hearing after lots of evidence have been produced. But there may be times when both sides or even only one side, you know, wants to have those issues decided now. Because it simplifies things pretty. Look, I mean, from your point of view, you take a limitation of liability. Um, you know, you may have a, a dispute that could be worth two hundred million—not worth, not worth—but it could be a claim for two hundred million, or it could be a claim for one million, depending on whether or how a limitation of liability clause is applied. Right? Sure. But why do you have to resource that as a two hundred million dollar case if it's really a one million dollar case? Vice versa. Why should you be <laughs> sending, you know, nickel and diming a case, you know, on one million dollars when it's, in fact it's a, it's a case with substantial risk to which you're exposed to 200 million? And I think those are things that also frustrate, you know, folks like us in-house counsel that we don't get that clarity, that guidance early in the process. So one of the changes I think that we are seeing, at least I, and again, this is more anecdotal at this stage than that's not, it's all anecdotal. It's not driven by data. But I've noticed that I do think you know, parties and tribunals in particular are more open to having more of a conversational approach, like let's decide things a bit more as we go along, mm -hmm. rather than postponing everything for one final hearing towards the end. And I have to give credit, by the way, for this thinking to somebody I know that you're also discussing to this season is um, Mohammed Abdel Wahab. Uh, Mohammed Abdel Wahab, who, who is, um, who, who I think is a phenomenal thinker. And um, I recall very early in the pandemic, predicted this would happen. He said, you know, I, you know I, I think that as a result of us going online and the fact that we can get together more easily, it's going to have a shift in attitudes and that we will see people actually being more, it'll be a more conversational approach. I, he had a better, typically he had a better way of putting this, but that was his, um, his, his prediction. And I, and I think that, and I think that we're seeing that. I think that we're seeing that tribunals and parties are now more open to having these decisions along the way. Well, and I think that makes sense. Um, and, you know, I, I certainly haven't spent as much time as you or, or Muhammad have, but so one of the frustrations that I, I at least felt in a voice to some extent has been the sort of increasing legalization of arbitration. And that might sound odd to maybe, you know, someone that's not as familiar, but what I mean is that you know, bringing in more lawyers, setting up these processes that more and more resemble litigation or a court processes, processes than what arbitration was supposed to be for in its roots, um, resolving a business dispute or 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 finding a way to come to a resolution without having to have all the uh, gravitas. Of yeah, well, yeah, maybe, but you know, yeah. you'll be careful sometimes. I mean, we we, we do this whole thing where you know, oh, the arbitration is you know it's become too much like you know I don't know North American litigation or even say even some civil law 
you know, litigation or the Prague rules, which are a certain type of civil law in some countries, litigation. You know, that's not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, there are tools of the litigation systems which are there for a reason. Um, some of them are set up also for procedural efficiency, for due process efficiency. Sure. Um, you know, and it, it, I think sometimes it's okay to say we're going to borrow and use some of those tools. Like, for example, early disposition is something that comes more from the common law. Right. Right. It is a mechanism that exists. Well, why not use that more often um, in, in international arbitration? No, I think that's right. And that's a fair distinction. Um, it's, it's not to decry the litigation system, but to say, I mean, to your point, if you do have the ability to sort of whittle down some of the issues so that, you know, let's say there's 10 issues, but there's really only three things that need the, the trier of fact or the arbitrator to decide, yeah. then why are we having, why are we preparing submissions on set on all 10 of them? I mean, that's, or, yeah, you know. or, 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 or even like, why do we do every arbitration like we did all the other arbitrations? Why did we, why do we come out with a, you know, PO1 and a procedural provisional timetable? That's identical. Just here, fill in the dates. Why not look at the dispute and, and the parties and say, well, maybe this maybe this is a good model, but let's see if we can adapt it for this particular dispute. Because that t requires more critical thinking and time, Mike. I mean, what, what? <laughs> well, you know, or 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 it just means that you'll you're it's you're less likely to. It's worked for you in the past, and therefore you may be. And you know, yeah, I guess you're right. Yeah, it's less work. <laughs> I was trying to be kind. Yeah, no, it's, it's fair. I mean, and look, I mean, lawyers, we like to find um, streamlined processes where we can. Um, you know, one of the things that, that you mentioned kind of uh, in, in passing uh, was was that you have this writing, uh, another chapter of a book, I think you said, uh, that's yeah. coming out later later this year. Um, but for those of you at home that don't maybe aren't familiar with Mike's uh, writings, Mike while being a, a full-time, having a full-time job as a global head of litigation and managing um, a number of work disputes, has found time to be a writer, to uh, speak at a number of conferences, to lead a number of industry initiatives, and he kind of like plays guitar or something on the side too. I learned guitar. I learned <laughs> He's guitar. Learned, learning guitar. And, and Chris used to play in our group, by the way. Yeah, that, Did you disclose this on your podcast? I didn't disclose that part. That, that, right, so, uh, that's, so, so, so we used to have this uh, country western bluegrass band, <laughs> acoustic band here in Florence. Um, I was one of the guitar players and, uh, and Chris, but we only had one clarinet and it was uh, Mr. Campbell here. That, that is true. That, that, that's bonus content. You got to, you know, get, <laughs> you know, get the, the extra bits for that. But the question I'm coming to Mike is, um, how, you know, asking the question of how do you find time is, 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 is the cliche. How do you pr prioritize your workflows so that you have the ability to, to, to juggle those? You know, I, I'll be honest, I often feel I don't, <laughs> you know, I, I, there's always more, it's not enough time in the day to do the things, right, that we would like to do. Um, I, you, you, you prioritize, you find ways and you have, you know, you have family commitments and we all find ways to prioritize. Um, it, it's actually, you know, one of the questions you ask people on your podcast often Actually, all of them. I listen to your podcasts, unfortunately for you. <laughs> for the listeners, I also call it Chris Afteroff and say, balance your levels. Um, the um, No, one of the things, uh, questions you ask is, what do you do on a Friday night? Which I, I, I find to be a question that's very difficult for me to answer because I don't know why Friday night would be different from other nights. Um this is the way I prioritize. I mean, you prioritize. You know, my wife, my wife Maggie, who's a who's a who's a not a lawyer at all. She's a, she's a, a business person. We both have this thing where you know it's really about finding. It's not about balance, work-life balance. It's about happiness, right? Are you happy doing what you're doing, right? If it's Friday night at ten o'clock and I'm working on a drafting a submission, but I like the case and I like the client and I'm enjoying doing it. Who am I hurting? I mean, why do I have to be watching Netflix when I would like working? But, you know, vice versa. If it's a Monday morning and it's a nice day outside and I want to take my dog for a long walk, why can't I? Why don't you know, I, I would rather have the flexibility that I could take advantage of that in the moment. And sometimes it means sacrifice means that, you know, being doing that means that, well, Saturdays and Sundays, you're doing things that are you're working. But, you, you know, you have you have that flexibility in your life. In order for life to be to be you know, to, to to feel like you're growing, which I again to the earlier point, and to feel that you're um, you're prioritizing things as you should. Sure. So it's it's not so much by you know trying to set up like you know artificial ba ba boundaries. It's about saying okay, well I have 
X number of things to do. I need to turn my attention to them when it's time to. What what, what he said. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If I thought about it, if I thought about it, never that would be that would probably would have been my answer number one. Yes. Yeah. But like I got to say, I mean, Friday is great for pizza and Netflix. I got to say, it's not bad. It's not bad. Um, especially so is so is Tuesday. Yeah. Also true. Yeah. Also true. Um. So. So we've we've talked about or made reference to the fact that you're not doing the same in-house counsel work that you've been doing for the for the long. I am doing the same. Yeah, yeah, I gotta say, I got to figure out how to word that properly. But (laughs) um, at least in a working, you have a different employer. You're now your own employer as opposed to uh, to working for for Baker Hughes. Can you tell us about that? What 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 exactly is it that you're doing? So. you know, again, this goes to I. I really enjoyed. Look, I got to work with people like you, and I don't mean that. You know, I. I. I got to choose that. I got to choose my teams, right? And that's you know, I, and I. And I had great teams. Um, and because uh, I, you know, for the listeners, I, I had a principle, which is always hire people who are better than yourself. So if you hire, oh, if you wow. hire, no, no, that, that's a rule. That's a rule, and I think that's that's something that came to me from General Electric. You know, you 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 want to hire really, you know, good teams. Um, and I always believed in small, high-powered teams, and I like that also in the in the council, the, the external council we worked with. I much preferred working with um, council who had, you know, small highly competent but focused teams as opposed to being you know a large team i always felt that was dispersive and it was hard for the team to keep an eye on on the project so anyway um i'm doing now like i started after leaving the company um at a, at a after having done this i was leaving the company i was there for 22 years and say people say well, why'd you leave when you left and so you should be asking why did i stay for 22 years <laughs> you know over 22 years 22 years in, in a couple in a few months um because i loved it it was a great job it was a lot of fun. Uh, 22 years is a long time <laughs> for anything. And um, so this company I have is called End Disputes, and we're providing in-house dispute resolution services um, to different companies. Where one, It's often the, the easier way for me to explain it to people is to say what we don't do or what we're not. And we're not a law firm. You know, I, I you know, uh, I'm, I did my years appearing before tribunals, um, acting as counsel. Um, that's not something that we're doing, but we can help companies hire the counsel who will do that for them. We can help them you know, manage disputes um, and find solutions. We just settled a very large case for a, I'm very proud of this, of a, of a, of a, a company that built a, an energy facility um, and I think that we help them. And I think even the other side is happy with the result that they didn't wind up in an, in an international arbitration. And that was just more about untangling things. And I think we got them to a place where they probably, you know, if we'd not gotten involved, would have gotten there themselves. It'd be halfway through a very expensive and damaging arbitration, or maybe they wouldn't have, maybe they would have gotten there at the end. So I think we're able to provide that sort of insight and guidance um, to parties along the way. Um, we're helping some with also finding litigation funding. Um, that's a small part of what we've been doing. But I think you know, letting companies know in our in our area of international arbitration. So litigation funding, it's you know the third party funding. It's it's been done. Nobody wants to talk about it anymore. Let me tell you, there are a lot of smaller companies. You know, companies that are smaller in the sense they have hundreds of millions of euros or dollars in revenues, and they don't know about the existence of funding. So. Anyway, I have a small team, and we're we're doing what we did before. <laughs> sure, sure. And just for the listeners, um, what, what's the name of the firm? M Disputes. M Disputes, and uh, is that is, is that the right terminology? I mean, you're not a law firm, but we're it's not a, firm. a law firm. M is Disputes. It? We, you know, and the M stands for you know, it could be Mike or McElrath or managing or medicinal doctor. I don't know. It's <laughs> Sure. Uh, but but I mean, how do you guys colloquially refer to yourselves? Do you guys think of yourself? You are uh, a company, a group, a firm? Or, I mean, we're a company. Okay. We're, we're a company. Um, we uh, and I, I, you know, it's it's it. I don't think that there and there are a couple of other companies out there that do what we do, but in very different areas. Like I know of one that, ha- that does this in a sort of advising uh, family investment funds, for mm-hmm. example. They're, they're quite successful at, at doing this. Um, we're a bit more in the technology space. I mean, that's just really kind of been where we have been. So, although one of my team members also has a background in, in media, um, various types of media, and we've been doing a little work in that area too. So do you plan to, is that the idea is to expand this to other 
uh, industries or is it to, to focus on where you're at and that's where you want to be for the long haul? Well, right now, it's, I think it's, look, we've only been in existence for less than a year. We started in July of 2021. It's now March of 2022. Um, we, so I think part of it has just been trying to figure out what is this space and where are the lines that we stay within. Um, we've had a lot of learning experiences and also in working with, working with law firms. I think, you know, uh, uh, the firms that we've worked with, with, we've come in where firms are already have been retained. Uh, we've been very careful about protecting those relationships where we're, you know, we don't come in to try to be ham-fisted and change things. It's more to provide support, additional support. Um, in terms of domain areas where we may go, I think it's more a question of where can we, we would get involved where we think that we can add value. Um, you know, if we don't think that we could help improve things or that there's not a role for us to play, then we wouldn't, we wouldn't want to get involved. But I don't think I don't think it's something where we're making decisions you know, hard and fast. Well, this industry applies, not that industry. Sure. It's five o'clock. Do you need to... Oh, let me let me call in yeah. and and then we can. Um, and I'll, I'll get back in. At six, I do have a hard stop because I have actually cord again. Okay. And back in three, two, one. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well. Um, Mike, one more question that I have uh, for you uh, as we're kind of wrapping up um, some of the thoughts and things that we've been talking about here is um, little known fact, uh, besides all the other things that you have, feathers in your cap that you wear, um, I understand that you're also involved uh, with the ICC and in particular the ICC governing board. Can you tell me a little bit more about one, what that is, and two, uh, what's your involvement been like? So I'm very proud to talk about this. Um, it's the governing body of the governing body sorry, for, dispute, sorry, yeah. for dispute resolution services, which would be our arbitration, mediation, and other ADR services that the ICC provides. Um, and it is a committee of the executive board of the ICC. Now, when people, when in our profession, a lot of people, most people think of the ICC, they think only of dispute resolution, international arbitration and mediation being the principal services and dispute resolution that the ICC provides. The ICC is actually a much larger organization that is that was created um, in the wake of World War One, um, when there were not international institutions. There was no international framework really to engage in international commerce. And so the ICC was created with a view to promoting, um, providing, helping to provide that structure. And in doing so, created the ICC Commission, which is an independent body of the ICC. And the ICC Commission created the Court of Arbitration, which is now part of the uh, ICC. Um, the Court of Arbitration is, is now also does uh, has the mediation services, which are part of, of the ICC. So the the um, the larger body, which um, uh, has been chaired for the last two years by AJ Banga, who is the former uh, CEO of Mastercard, is now there the chairman of the of the, of the board of Mastercard, um, and is chaired and, and the secretary general is John Denton. These are people that most people in dispute resolution don't know. But the, the United Nations knows them very well. Um, they, it is a very, you know, I think influential, significant organization doing very good work around the, around the world. Um, and one of the priorities of the ICC is supporting small, medium enterprises, um, with, you know, which are again, very large companies, but you know, in, in, in the tens of you know, hundreds of millions of dollars of revenues. And helping provide them with structure, helping them, you know, that, that's really the backbone of international commerce is a lot of small, medium enterprises, as well as big business. It's all part of what the ICC does. The ICC has a, um, a, a about, about a little over 10 years ago, the executive board decided that they didn't have expertise um, in the area of dispute resolution. And so it would make sense to create a, a body um, a board, a subcommittee of its own that reports to the executive board on the activities, um, on budgets, on strategy. And so they created the governing body for um, dispute resolution services. And I've been the chair since 2019. Um, the first person to chair that was Carl Hennessy, who's the uh, vice president of litigation at Airbus and did a phenomenal job. And I, I took over that role when and Carl uh, turned out 
Um, the, you, I invite anybody who's interested in the ICC to go to the ICC website under governance. You'll see, you know, the, the, not only uh, what the governing body is, but who the members are. You'll see that there, there are specific roles. There are four in-house counsel. This is very important for the ICC, um, that it's governance, that it's leadership, has the input, the guidance of the user community, the people who are paying for these services. We also have um, judicial. We have you know, Chief Justice Sundarish Menon, uh, Chief Justice of uh, Singapore, who is a member. We have academics. We have uh, Richard Suskind. Um, sure. Um, you, you, you know very well. Um, we have um, esteemed arbitrators um, who are who are members, and we have, of course, um, the we call ex officio members who come from the executive board and from the ICC dispute resolution. Claudia Solomon and Alex Fassas who participate as ex officio members. So the you know we, we, it's not an operational body. I mean now that's the operations. Like any board, you don't get into the day-to-day -day, uh, activities, but you look at you know how's the ICC doing? You know what are the strategic decisions that are being made? Do there need, we, we look at also the, like leadership changes. When Alexi Moore um, uh, decided not to stand for a third term, we helped organize the the selection committee for Alexi's replacement. Um, and that was actually a great, I think, accomplishment of Alexi is to make that pair that it was his idea to make that a completely transparent process so that anybody can see you can still today go on to the ICC site and find the, the, the terms of reference under which the selection of the court, you know, the president of the court of arbitration was chosen, who those members were. So it's governance of the ICC. And I think for in-house counsel or really any party who is thinking of engaging in international dispute resolution, you know, to look at very seriously, you know, I mean, the LCIA has a board, you know, the ICC, what's called the governing body, but it's a board that looks at those governance aspects. And we look at things like compliance. I mean, you mentioned earlier sanctions in passing. Um, sanctions is something that also can affect, you know, sure. a, a dispute resolution institution. Um, and I think this is something that's going to come up a lot in the coming years for all of the institutions as to how do you handle the parties from, from new, new sanctioned countries. Um, how do you, you know, it was a problem, you know, it was a problem I and mean, it was, you know, compliance is not a problem. It's a compliance is something you have to do. Um, but for the ICC and other institutions, Iran sanctions, we you know, were long an issue. The ICC was granted a license at the end of 2021, for example, to, um, to, to be able to handle disputes involving Iranian parties. Um, I, I don't know that institutions are going to be able to get licenses, you know, for Russian parties or Belarusian parties. That's something that I think remains to be seen as, as things unfold. Um, anyway, so it, 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 compliance, though, making sure that there are adequate processes in place that look to compliance, um, those sorts of things. But anyway, I, we, I, I, the ICC is, 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 and I don't think this is, again, um, is any secret. You can look at any speech that Claudia Solomon has given recently um, or over the last six months, she, she stepped in in July, and then she was on your podcast. You can also listen to the podcast with Claudia, um, July of 2021. Um, the ICC's dispute resolution services are in a period of a very significant transformation. Claudia is, is, is leading that. Um, it's, she's doing it after having taken soundings from a number of quarters as to, you know, how do you lead dispute resolution into the future? What are the needs of the parties who have disputes resolved? And she's, I think Claudia is fond of quoting um, Richard Susskind's most recent book on, about online courts and the future of, of justice, about online courts and the future of justice, which, which is that Parties, you know, mediation and arbitration may be two of the best ways right now. They may be the two best ways to resolve disputes, but parties don't want mediation. They don't want arbitration. What parties want is resolutions. Right. So Claudia's thinking and where she's trying to create and she's, she's building the structure around the ICC is how do you get parties to the resolutions without necessarily focusing on just how are we doing it now? You're thinking about how could, how might we do it tomorrow? How might we do this in the coming years? Well, sure. And, uh, and well, again, you're, you're doing a great job of uh, preempting my questions. I was going to ask you, <laughs> uh, um, you know, what, what, what you see coming down the pipeline broadly in the international dispute resolution space. And it sounds like what you're saying is that this sort of, you know, one of the things that Claudia mentioned and when she was on the show was this focus on the customer, the users, yeah. the clients, um, as a means of not only just distinguishing yourself from the other dispute resolution mechanisms, 
but also to, well, frankly, resolve the disputes. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, I mean, I th- you know, the, so this, again, to quote, uh, you know, uh, Richard Susskind's book, and, and I think Richard makes this point often, is that, you know, the, the technology that we will be using in 10 years has not been invented yet. Right. So, you know, and if you're someone in Claudia's position, and, and this is something I think, you know, that all boards of institutions are probably thinking about today is, you know, what is the technology going to be, you know, in five, 10 years? Um, what are the disputes that are going to be five to 10 years? And you have to begin to plan for that today. You can't wait, you know, until the, it's already there. You have to kind of think of what's, you know, we, we used to have, you know, before you joined the company, Chris, a, a CEO named Claudia Santiago, phenomenal, phenomenal leader. And one of Cloud, one of the things that Claudia used to always tell people is that you need to, your job is to see in what you do, your job is to see around corners. Right. So you're you're leading dispute resolution right now. You see the cases that are coming, but you, you can't just deal with the cases that are in front of you. You've got to be thinking about the cases that are going to be arriving next year. Sure. Right? So you can plan for them so you can resource for them. So I think, you know, it's that developing that instinct, that ability to see around around the corners. Yeah. No, I think that's great. Um, and, and, and fair enough. And, and I think we'll, we'll we'll put that there for now. We're going to make a little bit of a, a shift to the, the fun half of the, the final um, sort of. Uh, you know, lightning round questions. Um, Who have been some of uh, the guiding impacts, forces, or mentors that you've had um, over the course of your career? (laughs) Everybody. You, <laughs> you are, no, you, you, you're, you're very, you know, I think I, I, I'm grateful for you know, the conversations that we have and the, I think you're, you're a good influence on me. Um, um, the, uh, you may be a bad influence. I don't know. So it remains to be seen. No, I look, I think like a lot of people, I was influenced a lot you know, by my parents growing up, you know, and the, they were the role models for me early on. I think coming from a, a real, I mean, Coming from a town, a, a, a Stockton, California, where I grew up, is is a is a, let's say it's a rough place. It was a cow town in the old west. Um, it was an agricultural town when I was growing up. Cow town, by the way, is a sort of an old cowboy type town. <laughs> For those who don't know, I way. assumed it meant lots of cows. <laughs> it's actually, you remember, you remember the old TV show, The Big Valley? No. With Barbara Stanwyck. Bar- no, no, no. From the 1960s. That was that was supposed that was a cowboy show. It was set in Stockton. Oh wow. Yeah. Okay. KC at the bat. Mud, Mudville. Mudville. Okay. Stockton used to be called Mudville. That was supposed to be. I, I, we claim those of us from Stockton that, that Casey at the bat, his his failing took, took place in, in in Stockton. So I think you know, there were people you know I think in Stockton in that community who, who I think were very influential. I I told you about I think what, like a couple of women who well one in particular was Maya Angelou's mother who was very influential. Vivian Baxter we called her Lady B uh, Lady B for um, Vivian Baxter. Sure. And uh, she's the mother of Maya Angelou and she and I were you know she was she was friends with my mother. And um, Mai used to come and visit her often, but uh, but Lady B was a remarkable woman. It was a close friend, um, again, the family. And somebody, when I was living in Italy, would come home and spend a couple months at home. Um, she was retired and my friends were all out working or they had other things to do. So I'd spend a lot of time with her. And she was, I think, somebody who also encouraged the international side of me. She was, I think, when she was 17, she was the youngest merchant marine, um, maybe one of the first women and she was even early, she was not even old enough to join, and she went in. Um, and I think it's just good to have people like that, people you respect, who encourage those things to. It's, it's actually funny. I read I read um, recently Maya's Maya Angelou's book about her mother. It's called Mom and Me, and she says about her mother that she was a terrible mother when she was a small. In fact, she gave Maya to her grandmother, to Maya's grandmother, to raise her mm. in Stamps, Arkansas. And then Maya came back to live with her mother when um, she was, I think, in her late teens, early twenties. And she said, "But my mother was a phenomenal um, influence on a young adult." And I think it's mm. and it's a really I think it's really important to you know to have those figures when you're a young adult you know that people who can help encourage you and enable you and propel you in the right in the right direction. Sure. No, I that is a a great list of uh, sounds like pretty uh, seminal sort of forces um, yeah. when you're early in your life. Um, but all the way along, I mean, even yeah. today, my wife my wife Maggie is a very is a huge you know influence on, sure. on me. You know, I just I, I, I listen I take I take counsel. From her, um, you know, I'm very fortunate. I've had in, in GE, I had many years um, 
um, Professor Ugo Drieta, who's a former yeah. vice president for Europe, and Ugo just he took time. You know, these are these are all people, you know, they they, they all took time. It invested themselves in me, which is why I think it's important. I see you doing this as well with others, Chris. You take time, that you spend time, you invest yourself in others, um, because you know they they will be grateful for that, as I'm grateful for the people who did that for me earlier on. Yeah. Well, sure. I mean, I think that's the idea of um, lifting as you climb and reaching back and not forgetting that you know none of us are an island. None of us yeah. did this on our own. So, yeah. um, well, well said. Uh, By the way, your points of advice to you, you can kind of collect these. I think I told one of you, I'll, I'll just share one with you that I, uh, an experience that I had once um, went at, at, at Lady B's house and Maya was visiting at the time. And I think I went around town with Maya and she, had, she kept a Cadillac in Oakland. She would fly out from yeah, Charleston. From Charles. she, she would fly out from Charleston and she had to visit her son in Oakland and she would drive to Stockton in, in this Cadillac that she kept at her son's house. And... Um, uh, and she would do the rounds, checking on her mom. She'd go to the hospital, check up on all receipts and things. She was, you know, she was a good daughter, sure. <laughs> um, a poet, a writer, and a, you know, a very responsible daughter. Um, but I remember being in the living room and, and sitting next to Lady B, and, and I was getting grilled by by Lady B and Maya. What, what was I? What were my some of my plans as to the future and things that I was going to do? <laughs> and it's the questions I know you're getting now in your private life about you know, like, when are you going to do this? When are you going to do that? Yeah. And I said, and I remember saying. We're saying, well, you know, we've thought about, but, you know, it's just not a good time for that right now. And both of these women snapped and they go, Michael, yeah. it is never a good time for things like this. I mean, it's like burned into my brain at this point. It's, Michael, it's never a good time for things like this. Yeah, I, and, you, you know, you know, it's, it's like that, that. It's like, oh, yeah, never, I've never again said that to myself. It's not a good time. The, the most prominent example, no, and I'll, I'll give a tip of the cap to you right now that has done that and has been not shy about it, is my another former boss, uh, Judge Newman. Yeah. She has not been shy. She's like, oh, when are you, okay, so when are you going to do this? When are you going to do this yeah. phase of life? Now, and she get, has given some form of that. So I don't know. Maybe it's yeah, just it's, uh, maybe it's the, <laughs> the wisdom, the wisdom, yeah. It's something, but and those 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 the, the, those important lessons that get drilled into you by the right people at the right time, I think, kind of help you reorient yourself for the key moments in life. You know, no, I think that's wise. I think that's well said. Mm -hmm. um, what's on your bookshelf right now? What are you reading? Or yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'll tell you, I'll tell you, I'll tell you. This is you know one of the most interesting books. I haven't finished it yet because I pick it up, I put it down. Um, I started reading it before the invasion of Ukraine is a biography of Hitler. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, it's called the world is not enough. It's a recent biography based on some, uh, some documents that have not been studied before. And it, it takes you through, well, it's a biography of his entire life and I'm up to the late twenties and it's, uh, yeah. So I've been reading that. I've been reading, um, gosh, uh, another book about, um, how the universe, different scenarios under which the universe might end. Um, okay. Very positive, uplifting reading. <laughs> so catch me at another time. I'll be reading books about, I'll probably next, my next book will probably be something very, very uplifting and positive, but I've got a couple on my reading list right now. <laughs> okay. Um, if anything, uh, well, what, what, this I, I'll do this one instead of the movies. What kind of uh, music do you like? What, what do you listen to? Um, Come on, you know what I listen to. I listen to everything. Well, I was going to say it's a loaded question. I know the answer to this question, but listen, I listen to everything. Yeah. I, listen, I listen to anything. Yeah. I listen to everything. I like to, I like to listen to new stuff, things that I haven't heard before. Sure, but you know, yeah. Okay, fair enough. Um, any particular artist that you want to uh, name drop here? Uh. I know that there's literally a million running through your mind. So no, but you know, I'll tell you. I'll tell you. I'll tell you that. Well, I think maybe my favorite. Or my an album I come back to time and again all the time. I just think is a great masterpiece. It's Miles Davis's Kind of Blue, and I think it. And I, and I but I just think it's creative genius. It's you know, and I even have a book about about that album, sure. about how he about Miles brought these other genius musicians together, and they were able to improvise this masterwork. Um, and you know, again, right people at the right time all coming together. Sure. You know, and they just worked around a structure. I don't know if you know. You, you know. Yeah, I'm sure you know. Yeah. 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 You know that that those were not written out. He just basically wrote out the chord charts, and they and they said, "This is kind of how I want you to play it," and the rest was just people being creative geniuses. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, timing, timing, timing. Um, I'm working on my timing. We all are. We all are. Um, you work with a metronome? That'll, yeah. that'll, that'll help. Chris. Yeah, we will. It will absolutely. <laughs> um, the importance of a metronome. Um, so we're coming here to the, the last couple of questions here, yeah. Mike. Um, the next one that I would have for you, and I, and I bet there are a lot of listeners that are curious here for this one. Let's say you're approached by um, a recent graduate or a student or maybe someone that's looking to make a shift into international dispute resolution. Yeah. 
um, and they say, hey, Mike, you know, what should we do if we want to be active in this field? What, what would you recommend to them? Listen to what you said earlier in this podcast. Okay. That's what I tell them. I think this will be, I'll, I'll tell them for now, listen to what Chris said about how, because this was true of me too. I mean, I wanted to get into international dispute resolution. I held my hand up. I kept looking for opportunities. And until, you know, and I waited, I made sure that the opportunities didn't just, I didn't sit around waiting for them to come along. I, I tried to actively create opportunities for myself. And I think that that was, you gave a little lesson right there. Yeah, as to, it, it's true. And it's, well, it's something that, you know, I've received from the, the mentors that I've collected, right? right. Um, it's, you know, okay, let's say a lot of students will want to go straight into an international arbitration job right out of law school. And the reality is, I mean, that almost just never happens. I mean, it's, yeah. it's rare that you walk into something that is perfectly exactly what you're looking for. So having that awareness of mind to still pursue that in your, quote, spare time or, yeah. you know, while you might be doing something else. It, it ha it, it, a, few, a few people are lucky sure. for that to happen. I think I know I've told you my I think I've told you my theory of the front door and the side door. Yes, yeah, the yeah, servants yes. entrance. Yes, you have. I, you know, I think you and I sort of came through the side door. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so, yeah, you know, we're like, and that so the, the front door is that you sort of see this really nice street, these really fancy houses, and you see the people being served in this nice room with white gloves, and they're coming around. Yeah. And then there's the the side door where the people who are working in that place, they're working in the kitchen, they're mm -hmm. they're bringing things in, they're taking the trash out mm -hmm. or whatever. You know, sometimes that's your avenue to get into the front door. It's like, you know, does, does anybody know anything about international arbitration? Well, I did the V-Smoot. Maybe, you know, you could say, or I did, you know, I, I studied in Beijing or, you know, or I, in my case, it was before the v -Smoot. We had the Jessup. I could say, yeah. well, I did the Jessup moot, you know, in this. Um, and so that when the opportunity is presented, you're there, you know, you're, you're, you're around. Um, but don't, don't, uh, so, sometimes... Hanging out near the side door is, um, you know. Sometimes I, the door's ajar. It's left open. The door, yeah. Sometimes the door's ajar. Sometimes you can kind of, you know, put your foot there and maybe prop it open a bit. <laughs> exactly. No, exactly. I think that, again, that, that that's well said. Um, you alluded to this a little bit early in one of your answers. Let's say it's, uh, well, five o'clock or whatever the arbitrary time is that you're going to take some relaxation time. How do you spend that time when you want to completely kind of disengage from, um, I guess, the work stuff? I go walking with my dog, Booker. Walking with the dog, Booker. And, and well, good. That, that's, in, again, another great segment. Hiking. I mean, we have you know, hiking in the hills. I mean, we have lots of places where we hike. He loves to. Yeah. And, if, and, and if I don't do it, he makes me do it. So I, I'm, I've got a good, I got, he's, a, he's a pal. He's my buddy. Well, and, and that, that's, again, that's a, a perfect segue to our last question. Booker got the first one. What name drops, shout outs do you want to give uh, before we get out of here? I, Chris Campbell. Yeah. Ah. <laughs> so, um, oh, Chris, I would say uh, uh, you, you and, the, and your team, uh, Oscar and, and uh, Christina and uh, Teresa and, and Teresa. Well, of course, Teresa. <laughs> oh my God, you're gonna. <laughs> you know, I'm gonna get in trouble just for that. <laughs> I'm trying to start. I was starting geographically, Chris. So, fair, fair, fair. And Amy, and of course, you know, and and and. Um, Gina and Myris in, in Houston, and I, I hope that you guys are all doing really well. We are. We are. We miss you, but we, you know, we're happy for you and all the <laughs> stuff that you've been doing since. Um, well, look, uh, Mike, we are uh, approaching the end of our time together. We appreciate you coming by the studio. Thank you. <laughs> I like the studio. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes. Um, Mike, you want to sign us off? Mike McElrath, and you're listening. There's no disputing it. You're listening to Tales of the Tribunal. You want to give that one? What more? he said. Yeah. <laughs> All right. All right. Thanks. Bye. <laughs>
One of the things that I really appreciate in talking with Mike is the big picture perspective that he brings to problem solving, whether it's arbitration, negotiation, or career development in general, you can count on some solid advice and usually a jazz or literary reference or two. It might be too early to plan on having him back on the show again, but it's definitely something we'll have to look into. One more announcement as we wrap up today. Friends of the show, Professor Ben Hayward and Nadia Oyafsmahi are hosting a conversation on mandatory law and international arbitration, some European and Asia-Pacific perspectives. As the name implies, they will be taking an overview perspective of this topic, as well as facilitating some conversations on recent developments and perhaps even a bit of peering into the future. The event is online and it will take place on November 3rd, 2022 at 7 p.m. Melbourne. We'll include a link to sign up in the show notes. All right. And well, here we are. Final thoughts on season four. Season four is a special one. It was a return to finally being in person. After two seasons of being wholly remote and trying to figure out how to make an engaging show, it was fantastic to be back in person, face to face. And to not only be able to sit face to face with these guests, but to create some new content and formats that we weren't able to do previously. We're excited to continue doing that in the off season and into season five. And most importantly, I am blown away and taken aback by how much we've grown, both in the quality of the show, that's really just a shout out to the editors, to our guests, and especially to you, the listeners. We eclipsed 20,000 downloads and we are growing each and every day. But what we've already accomplished simply wouldn't be possible without all of you. So for that, a heartfelt thank you. Finally, finally, as mentioned, if you're listening to this episode as it airs, you'll find me at ICC Miami. And if you're around, I'd love to meet you. And I hope you'll stop by our mobile digital studio. We got a new microphone. And of course, if we're there, that might mean if you stop by next week, you might find a little extra postseason content in the show's feed. Hint, hint, wink, wink. Tales of the Tribunal is produced by Mo Better Solutions. Show music is by Joshua and Jaden Campbell. Thanks again for listening. This has been a great season. We're going to take a few weeks off um, to recover, and then we'll be back with Disputes Digest. In the meantime, there's no disputing it. You're listening to Tales of the Tribunal. We'll see you soon. None of the views shared on today or any episode of Tales of the Tribunal is presented as legal advice nor advice of any kind. No compensation was provided to any person or party for their appearance on the show, nor do any of the statements made represent any particular organization, legal position, or viewpoint. All interviewees appear on an arm's length basis, and their appearances should not be construed as any bias or preferred affiliation with the host or host's employer. All rights reserved.